Well, friends, good morning to you all. Uh, lovely to be uh, with you on this most British of mornings, cold and overcast, light rain in the air, and yet to be able to be here with you and to open up the sunshine of God's Word. And so accordingly today, as we continue on in this series, in the Apostle Paul's first century letter uh, to the church in Philippi, in modern day uh, Greece, we find ourselves in chapter 1 and in the second half of verse 18. And so if you have a Bible, uh, please do turn there right now. I'm sure that will be of great help to you, certainly of great encouragement to me. If you're using an ESV Bible, you'll see the heading there, to live is Christ, at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Please be seated. What is your life? What is your existence? In just a few sentences, what makes a, a joyful existence? According to MimiFox.com, quote, Mimi Fox is a New York Times best-selling author and life coach. She has edited a dozen books on health and spirituality. Mimi sits on the board of Hope Foundation USA. Mimi is blissfully married to the love of her life, Kieran. She lives in Paris, France, with him and their preschool-aged twins, the Joy Boys. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa with distinction from Stanford University with a BA and MA in psychology. She also holds an MA in counseling and is an Anna Forrest certified yoga instructor. Mimi Fox's loftiest goal is to be a joy champion. Mimi Fox's loftiest goal is to be a joy champion. Accordingly, this well-respected life coach of our day uh, this joy champion of the 21st century has fortunately for her followers recently revealed seven secrets to a more joyful existence. And here they are quoted in abbreviated form, seven secrets to a more joyful existence. At number one, I'm not quite sure how this squares with her own website, but anyway, number one, be vulnerable. In any social situation, if you start off with a list of your accomplishments, you're bound to elicit judgment, lead with your vulnerability. Number two, be celebrating. Celebrate everyone and everything as much as possible. 
Most importantly, celebrate yourself. Do a victory dance around your living room when you accomplish a task, no matter how small. Even celebrate that delicious bite of almond butter toast you had for breakfast. Number three, be awestruck. Experience awe in nature. Get yourselves out into the mountains for a bike ride, to the beach for a walk. Go to the forest to commune with trees. Number four, belong. Mimi writes, I make friends on Facebook and Twitter. I don't necessarily have any intention to connect with these people in the future. I just want to move through life feeling as though I've made the world a little bit smaller. Number five, be generous. Often the only way out of an emotional mess is giving. I once raised $4,000 and took that money to Haiti, where I worked in tent villages offering counseling, hugs, and love. When I returned to San Francisco just 10 days later, I felt transformed. Number six, be sloppy. It's life, after all. Indulge. Go to an all-night rave. I found that the greatest moments of joyful connection to myself occur when I'm being authentic rather than polished and perfect. And finally, number seven, be a lover of this universe. Be a lover of what is, says Mimi. Why struggle against what is so? Here is what manifesting joy really boils down to. The more you love the universe, the more it loves you. Friends, again, what is your life? If you had a yourname.com website, and maybe you do, how would your existence be described in just a few sentences? And if you were to write such an article on joy, what secrets would you share? In the letter to the first century church in Philippi, we meet another writer. And in a sense, we meet another life coach. Indeed, a man who boldly says in this very letter, chapter 3, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. In this letter, we meet another writer, another life coach, but above all, we meet another joy champion. Indeed, in this short letter, we note the word 13 times the word joy or the command to, to rejoice is just, is just all over the letter. Indeed, we see it twice in our opening verse today. Look with me. Verse 18. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. I.e., I'm full of joy now and I will always be full of joy. Which is very striking when we consider those preceding verses that we looked at last week. And when we contemplate this writer's life situation. For the writer, the apostle Paul, is verse 13 imprisoned. Paul finds himself in a first century Roman jail. And before he entered his cell, most likely he would have been stripped naked and thrashed with nails. His bleeding wounds would have gone untreated. He'd have sat there every day in his blood-soaked shirt and chains, hemmed in with violent people, cold, painfully hungry, feeling sick at the sight and stench of death all around him. In short, Paul could not employ any of Mimi Fox's secrets of joy. Believe it or not, Paul could not celebrate that, that delicious first bite of almond butter toast in the morning. Paul was in Italy, but he could not be in awe of nature. There were no bike riding weekends in the Alps. 
Paul could not belong. He had no Wi-Fi, no social media, no, no, no friends from work. Indeed, verse 17 tells us that some of his so-called colleagues were defaming him whilst he was in prison. And nor could Paul be generous. Chapter 4 reveals that Paul was actually a needy recipient rather than a wealthy benefactor. And he certainly couldn't be sloppy. The closest he got to an all-night rave was an all-night prison riot. And so how could Paul be a lover of this world? A lover of what was? Paul gets a zero and nothing out of seven on Mimi Fox's scale of joy. Accordingly, in this letter, we expect to read of the most miserable man imaginable. And indeed, some people today paint the Apostle Paul just like that, as some kind of ancient Eeyore. But in reality, when we go back to the primary sources, we see that this man is the, it is the tigger of the first century. This hungry, imprisoned, lonely, needy outcast it is the champion of true joy. Friend, whoever you are this morning, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, is that not at least intriguing to you? How on earth was this man so joyful? Well, obligingly, the next verse tells us, because verse 17, uh, verse 19 rather, starts with the word for. I rejoice, yes, and, and I will keep rejoicing for, verse 19, look with me, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Friends, can you see what Paul's joy was, was all wrapped up with? It is wrapped up not in whether he is physically well, well-watered, well-fed, well-thought-of, well-photographed, well-liked on social media. No. His joy is, is not wrapped up in, in his existence at all, but rather in exalting Christ. Paul is full of irrepressible joy because he knows that thanks to their prayers and thanks to the Spirit's work, verse 19, that, that even in these moments, he will exalt Christ. He's already told every prison guard about Jesus, verse 13. And Paul is certainly, is certain that at his trial, he'll have the courage to validate his salvation again. My joy overflows because, verse 20, I know, I know that Jesus will be honored in my body. For Paul, a joyful existence is existing to exalt Christ. Indeed, that is my first point and my chief point for any note takers this morning. A joyful existence is existing to exalt Christ. But perhaps as some of you here, you cynically ask how? How on earth could the greatest joy in life be found in exalting a first century carpenter, a man who died 2,000 years ago? And perhaps for others of us here, you ask a similar question, although somewhat more regretfully, you ask, how could that really be so for me? It might be so for the super-Christian, for the missionary, for the pastor. I could see how exalting Christ might be your greatest joy if you were good at it, or you got paid to do it. But that's not really me, at least not anymore. Well, stepping aside from our passage just, just for a moment... 
Uh, let me tell you two quick reasons why the greatest joy comes when existing to exalt Christ. The first reason is this. Everyone has been made to exalt Christ. Everyone has been made to exalt Christ. One of my good friends at high school was a boy named James Cockle. And by his own admission, Cockle was not good at at many subjects, and he didn't really like school as a result very much. He was poor at maths, bad at science, and clumsy in sport, and he was truly dreadful at vocational education. Watching him in woodwork was like watching Charlie Chaplin. We'd watch Cockle from the graphics room and see him accidentally sawing his his project in half and then then glue-gunning his finger one minute and then dropping a hammer on his toe the next. He was rubbish. So many lessons. And so for much of school, he'd grumpily sigh and half it like only a teenager could. But one day, Cockle discovered that he was made for foreign languages, made for them. And in these lessons, you just see this cheeky smile slide across his face as he just, he just nonchalantly pick up French within minutes. Though he huffed his way through much of high school, Cockle ended up studying languages for five joyful years at Cambridge University. Because God made him for foreign languages. And when he realized that he was made for them, he found his greatest delight in them. And in a sense, that is what so much of school and and, and indeed the rest of life is is about. Finding joy in that which we know that we have been made for. Some here have been made for the the silent Vanderbilt lab. Others made for the rowdy middle school classroom. We look at some and we, we see that they have been made for sport. On the football field, they find their joy. We look at some others and we see that they've been made for books. The library, they find their greatest pleasure. But friends, everyone, everyone in this room, no matter what life subject we are good at, has been made for Christ. For that is what God's word tells us at Colossians 1.16. For by Christ, all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. And so when we grasp that we have been made by him and ultimately made for his glory, we realize not only is exalting Christ not like the mad worship of a dead carpenter, but also that exalting Christ will bring us our greatest joy, whether we are a pastor or a pediatrician, whether we are a missionary or a mum of three. And friends, that is the joy of Christian living and indeed the joy of what God is like. For God doesn't want us to exalt Christ so that we would have the most miserable life. God wants us to exalt Christ, that for which we have been ultimately made, so that we might have the most joyful life. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. In the New Testament, we are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross in order that we may follow Christ, exalting him. But nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do contains an appeal to desire, to joy, If there lurks in modern minds the notion that to desire our own joy and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, then I submit that this notion has no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward 
and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, our joys, not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, if you are here and you have not accepted Christ, you must, as we have already sung this morning, Hide yourself in him, trusting his cross to save you from God's justice for a life of self-exaltation. For Christians run to Christ first, not out of pleasure, but out of deep necessity, realizing that they will stand before him at the very end, the one who has made them for his glory. But friends, let me tell you, let me tell you that, that when you go to him, when you take that crown off your head and stop pretending and place it upon your maker, there you will discover an underlying joy, that which you have been made for. Go to him in repentance and faith. For the greatest joy is found in an existence which looks to exalt Christ because we have been made for Christ. But, but also, and, and secondly, as an aside, great joy is found in existence which looks to exalt Christ because that type of joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Think about it. If we look for a Mimi Fox type of joy, then we will only find it in a Mimi Fox type of life. For such joy is evidently reliant on the ability to celebrate and to bike ride in the mountains and to connect with people online and to, and to give great sums of money to other people and to, and to love the moment that you're in. And perhaps such joy can be found when you are a graduate Phi Beta Kappa with distinction from Stanford University, and when you are a rich New York Times journalist, and when you live in Paris, France, the home of, of European art and, and fashion with Kieran, the love of your life, and your two twins that you nickname the Joy Boys. But what if you don't even graduate high school? What if you are poor and unemployed? What if you live in Paris, Tennessee, home of the world's biggest fish fry? What if you have no love of your life or a very difficult marriage? What if you are unable to have children or have kids that bring more disappointment than joy? If joy is dependent on the ability to exalt yourself, what happens when your existence looks like a failure? In great contrast, those who live to exalt Christ may be anyone, anywhere, at any time. Paul finds as much joy in exalting Christ here in Philippians 1, all alone in this humiliating jail cell, as he does when he is preaching Christ in Acts 17 to the brightest minds of the day in the Areopagus. And so, my Christian friends, what would it look like for you to find joy in exalting Christ in painful seasons and in all the disappointments that you may face tomorrow, would it be possible for you to have joy at work when you're in a job that you don't really enjoy because actually you're looking to exalt Christ in it? Would it be possible for you to find joy in singleness, though you desire the good gift of marriage? 
Would it be possible to find joy in exalting Jesus when, when your spouse ruins your Instagrammable life through sin or financial mismanagement? As a Christian, would it be possible to be joyful in illness, in old age, joyful in debt, joyful when the dream house falls through? Would it be possible to find joy even amid COVID? Or do you think you'll only be able to exalt Christ in summer 2021 after you're a vaccination? Friends, whatever pain you are going through, there can be joy. Joy even in suffering. There was for Paul as he exalted Christ in prison. There there was for Christ as he exalted his father on a cross. And so, my friends, when our life is hidden in Christ... When we live to exalt him and not ourselves, we may find a joy that, that, that is wonderfully independent of our existence and our present circumstances. A joyful existence is existing to exalt Christ. But returning back to our text this morning, what does it actually look like to exalt, exist to exalt Christ? What does it mean practically to honor Christ in our body and so find this this irrepressible joy. And how do we know if we have really found it? Indeed, perhaps you look at Paul rather anxiously, uh, uh, thinking, well, my joy, my joy seems to fluctuate depending on the percentage cloud cover and the percentage level of caffeine in my bloodstream. How does one evidence that this joyful existence? Well, look down and to verse 21 onwards to see there that Paul reveals two manifestations of joy. And the first is a joy in death, for death means going to Christ. And so point two, joy in death going to Christ. Joy in death going to Christ. Look with me at verse 21 again. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. In these verses, we see that Paul has a dilemma. The apostle is is torn. Indeed, it is quite unlike Paul to come across as so indecisive. And yet, at first half of verse 23, he says that that I am hard-pressed, like a vintage trouser press, I am sandwiched here between two searing options. But his overriding desire, second half of verse 23, is what? His desire is what? His desire is death. If I had my own way, says Paul, I'd be found guilty today and executed tomorrow. Friends, this is not because Paul looked forward to pain any more than the rest of us. Death is painful, and we should not be blasé about it. No, Paul's joy comes not from dying, but in death. For in death, verse 23, there is an immediate departure. And not only an immediate departure from this world, but but also an immediate arrival home. Like a newlywed about to put the key in the front door. Like a young dad waiting to, to drive home to his newborn. Paul delights at the thought of going to be with Christ. Indeed, Paul sees himself almost in the departure lounge right now. Paul sees himself as possibly about to get on the plane and go home to be with Jesus. Joy and death make sense for Paul because he is he's so wrapped up in Christ. Accordingly, the first sign of an existence that looks to exalt Christ is an underlying joy at death. 
Not joy about the process of our dying, but ultimately an unexplainable desire for death because dying means going home to be with Jesus. The last funeral I went to was the funeral of Colin Jones. Colin used to come to our church in London sporadically, though his regular church was a few miles from ours. Colin was a top physicist in his day, but in retirement, a committed Gideon. Colin spent his final days going into schools, giving out Bibles and telling young children all about his saviour. By appearance, Colin was a very, very small man indeed, but one with a giant sense of humour. And one day, shortly after his 80th birthday, after not feeling too well, he went to the doctors. And the doctor leaned over his desk and he said to him, Mr. Jones, I'm, I'm very sorry. You have pervasive cancer and you have just a few weeks to live. And this little old man paused, leant over the table, and with a twinkle in his eye, he replied, and doctor, how will this affect my career as an international basketball player? How could Colin joke at a moment like that? His son asked us at the funeral. It was because Colin had just been told that he was going home to be with his saviour. My friends, death is not a laughing matter. There is an appropriate grief when anybody dies. We should be sad when loved ones leave us and sad when Christian and brothers and sisters depart. I do not tell Colin's story to be glib, but I tell it so that we may understand how one who lives to exalt Christ may think of death. If we live for Christ, then death is gain because death is going home to be with him. And so whilst those who don't know Christ may stress madly over death, blocking it from their sight at every possible turn, the Christian may stare back at it with an underlying joy. The 18th century theologian and preacher Jonathan Edwards put it like this. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper happiness, and it is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied And so to die and to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than father and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of all our earthly friends. These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes on us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. We should subordinate all other concerns of life to it, for why should we labor for anything else or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? How does one evidence this joyful existence? How might one have a confidence seeing themselves and this desire to exalt Christ? Firstly, they have a joy in death, for death is going to be with Christ. But secondly, and finally, in our last few minutes this morning, not only is there joy in death, for death is going to be with Christ, but also for the Christian, there is a joy in life, for life is going to other Christians. Final point, joy in life, going to other Christians. The end of verse 23, Paul appears settled, doesn't he? My desire is to be with Christ, that is far better. 
The verse 24 starts with the word but. Look down with me again. Uh, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Can you see there at the end of verse 26, his his overarching joy is exactly the same as before. I want you to have ample cause to glory in Christ. I live for the exaltation of Jesus, and because of that, verse 25, I'm convinced that I'll not be going to Christ just yet. Instead, I'll be coming to you in Philippi again. It is the most staggering commitment in light of what he is going through in jail. For surely if Paul managed to get out of this this Roman prison cell, he deserves some kind of retirement in the Italian hills. Surely he'd be well within his rights to put up his feet. But no, as soon as Paul walks out of this prison, he'll be walking 5,000 miles straight back to them. And not, not because he'd rather have a holiday in Greece. But so that, end of verse 25, I may continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You know, when I first started out on this sermon and came to that famous line in verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain, I found myself instantly focusing on the to to, to die is gain bit. For I instantly saw the, the great encouragement and the great challenge there, particularly as a young man thinking that he has so much to live for. But in a sense, for most of us, that the far greater encouragement and challenge is actually found in the first half of that verse. To live is Christ. For life in Christ is not just our insurance policy in death, but a life lived for other Christians' progress in the faith. Paul sees his earthly life not just as one who is waiting for heaven, but sees his life through the lens of how he can ensure that other people get there too. Death in Christ means going to be with Christ, but life in Christ means going to be with other Christians. And so the the joyful Christian life, Paul says, is not primarily evidenced, not primarily evidenced in going to church every Sunday, Not evidenced primarily in going to the early morning Bible study. Not evidenced in going to the right conferences or or, or going to the study with all the right Christian books in them. Not going primarily to to the homeless shelter. Not evidenced primarily in going to an anti-abortion rally or or evidenced in going online to fight social injustice, although all those things can be good and right and Christian things to do. However... Paul, this champion of joy and the exaltation of Christ, tells us that life in Christ primarily means going to other Christians and going to them for their progress and joy in the faith. And friends, let me tell you that I am so glad to be part of an eldership that primarily models that and part of a church membership that primarily does that a church full of people who walk towards Christians, people who are just quietly getting on with it, spending themselves, spending their money for the sake of other Christians' progress in the faith rather than their own exaltation. 
opening the Bible with young Christians that they might progress in belief and practice, praying with older saints, keeping them going, that they might have joy on those, on those final few laps. And if I may turn to my older brothers and sisters for a second, let me say that if you are not dead yet, if you're not home yet, then that is your primary task too. If you're watching on Zoom because you're homebound, you're not done. Christ still needs you alive for the sake of other Christians' progress. Keep praying for other church members. And if you are a man here over the age of 60, but you rarely get up to the, the, the stage these days, you are not done. Christ still needs you alive for the sake of other Christians' joy and progress. Keep encouraging the young man in the pulpit. And if you've been serving here for decades, but think that the youngsters have now just come in and taken the reins so that you can just slide into retirement, don't, please. Christ still needs you alive for the sake of serving him in this place. Keep serving us, all of us, for the sake of our joy in the faith. For although you may now start to see death as gain, to live is still Christ. What would it look like for you, indeed for all of us, to live our lives based not on how we can be exalted, but on how other Christians can exalt Christ more? And so, as I asked us all, so I'll ask us all again at the end, what is your life? If you had a yourname.com website, how would your existence be described in a few sentences? Could it be described in that single sentence? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, whoever we are, however old or young we may be, whether all is good, whether death appears near or far away, may we all say this day and every day, until you call us home, to live as Christ and to die as gain.